HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan. Welcome to Speaking Broadly, where each week I share inspirations from the world of food. Today I have two extraordinarily inspiring women on the show, one of whom has helped save literally millions of lives, and one who's made a single life even more memorable. My first guest today is Emily Kaiser Thalen. Emily is a terrific writer and editor. I know Emily because we worked together at Food & Wine magazine for years, and it was a story in Food & Wine magazine with Paula Wolfert that helped launch her most recent book, which is called Unforgettable. It's a biography of, the, of Paula Wolfert, who is a culinary adventurer. Emily, welcome to Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much for having me. So... <clears throat> I'm, I was so thrilled to read this book. I love it so much because on every page I can hear Paula's very particular voice speaking. You've captured that so well. And her story and those incredible, incredible recipes. So you chose to do this book, but it was a challenge, right? You had so many people turn you down saying, you know, Paula, she's, like, she's a cook's cook. We like her, but we don't think there's an audience here. What made you persist? Well, um, 
partly I'm just a dog on a bone, but partly and partly uh, her story is so important to American food history. She's done so much for us. And then uh, the big kick was uh, her diagnosis with Alzheimer's. Um, while I was getting lots of rejections from publishers, she confided in me that she had been diagnosed with dementia, probable Alzheimer's, and I just felt I had to get her mem- her life down while her, she could still remember it. Did that scare you, with the notion of writing a biography with someone who is losing their memory? It's almost like, you know, you're in the water swimming and you need to get to the shore before you're swamped and the memories are gone. It did, and that's a really good men- metaphor. Um, it terrified me, and very early on in the process, she got a very bad cold, and Paula is has a real iron constitution. She's a terrible hypochondriac, but she actually never gets <laughs> sick. And the cold really worsened her dementia symptoms. And I thought, oh my God, what am I doing? This is a really bad idea. And we had to have a very blunt talk about it because I, wor- I worried not only like, I'm not going to get the accurate memories, but the stress of the project is going to worsen her condition. And so we had a real heart to heart. And I said, are you up for it? And are we doing the right thing? And she said, I'm here for you. I'm, I'm, I, I want to do this. This gives me new energy and new life, and I can do all I can. Um, and the other part of it was we had done an ex- quite extensive oral histories before her diagnosis and before I had uh, written a book proposal, um, really digging very, very deep into her early life. Uh-huh. So I felt like I had the facts down on her life from sort of zero to 40, and then she really hit her stride at 40, and from 40 onwards, we had backup material. We had her cookbooks, her huge archive of newspaper clippings, her husband, who had been al- working alongside her the whole time, and, and very good friends who I could interview. That's actually an extraordinary stroke of luck, isn't it, that you were able to get the early life from her, and those are the memories that remain strongest, as I understand. And then yeah. you know, other people could corroborate when she became better known. Can you, for the audience that doesn't know who Paula Wolford is, just yeah. summarize uh, the, the work, the pioneering work that she did around the world? Yeah, so our line is, um, Paula is the most influential cookbook writer you've never heard of. Um, Really unusually for a cookbook writer, she never had a restaurant, she never had a TV show, but she had incredible reach and influence. She was intensely admired by some of our most creative chefs. Uh, And she was an tireless uh, adventurer. She she started in the early 70s writing the seminal book on the foods of Morocco called Couscous and Other Good Food from Morocco, which has really never been topped. Um, she moved on from there to southwest France, where she wrote the recipe for duck confit that is the one that Chez Panisse has been using ever since and a lot of other restaurants use from southwest France. She moved on to the entire Mediterranean and really introduced the very concept of Mediterranean cooking. It's hard to believe there was a time when Americans didn't know what Mediterranean cooking was, but there was, and she changed that. And from there, she really dove into the eastern Mediterranean and kind of plowed the ground that Ottolenghi and others have since sort of taken root. Um, She really was one of the first food writers to introduce the idea of metze, the Middle Eastern small plates, and then she had a direct hand in importing the first um, Marash chili flakes, which have become sort of chef darlings. 
from Turkey. When you line it up like that, it is extraordinary that she's not better known. But I think there are a, a couple of reasons for that. One, um, and, and you mentioned a few of them, that she wasn't a chef. She didn't have a TV show. In fact, she did most of this work before um, a food TV even existed. And I have to say, from an editor and a cook's point of view, her recipes are complex. <laughs> what no, is I think... Um, sorry, go, I'll let you ask the question. So... I wonder, what did the recipes tell you about Paula that her words perhaps could not? That is a wonderful question. Um, they, and, and it's particularly poignant with her dementia, because her dementia has really altered her mind and her outlook. Um, so the recipes tell a story that's no longer accessible in the present day. That um, They tell a story of someone who is relentlessly precise and she is a real reporter she wants to get at the truth of a recipe and I can't tell you the number of times I've had where I'm cooking one of her recipes and I'm sort of feeling a little bit sloppy and don't want to follow it to the letter and she says to use a thin pan and I grab my nearest roasting pan and it, and it doesn't work I should have as, as another tagline for the project is keep calm and follow the recipe like, you have to respect her words um, her her exactitude is almost superhuman. That's, that is, um, right, and the recipes are, are so dense, being that exact, I think maybe intimidating to cooks. I was fascinated yeah. by uh, the notion that you can recreate an exact flavor from memory, particularly if your memory is fading. Do you think that she was actually replicating like her grandmother's recipe when she, you know... Um, would tackle something that you remembered from childhood? Or what do you think is the role of food and memory? Well, it was really fun researching the food science. Very little is known because it's very hard to study the brain. Like the whole brain imaging science is really young. Um, we didn't even understand how the physical act of tasting until the early 1980s, the um, same scientist who invented the phrase the omnivore's dilemma that gave Michael Pollan the title for his book, Paul Roseanne. He discovered this retronasal smell that we don't actually taste by tasting. We taste by reverse smelling our food, by having the odor sort of slid up through the backs of our noses. Hmm. Um, but that when that happens, more recently, people have discovered it triggers a whole host of processes inside our brains that are so complex. This one wonderful food scientist named Gordon Shepard who wrote this book that everyone should read called Neurogastronomy talks about how our brains actually perceive flavors at such a complex level they're like human faces Wow! Um, and that just sent chills because I feel like Paula part of the reason for her exactitude is she actually bonds with these recipes like human beings and she forms a very richly detailed relationship with them and so I think actually she can recreate flavors to that level of specificity because she's sort of pulling up the whole relationship with them. I'm wondering what your relationship with Paula and in doing this book, did it change you in some way? It really did. I, I think she gave me more courage to sort of stand by my gut instincts and um, sort of believe in my own hunches about things and, and uh, in, in sort of doing this book was uh, was really acting on a gut instinct and then also um, yeah and, and the courage to sort of see through my desires at, at a very sort of detailed level 
And then hopefully we'll see when I'm 75, but I feel like she's really given me a model of how to live well um, and deal with aging and really embrace it and be open about it and um, stay in the now. With that, Emily, I want to thank you for coming on Speaking Broadly. I hope everybody goes out and buys Unforgettable. It is an extraordinary book, and Emily, you did a fantastic job bringing Paula her life and recipes to a broader audience. Thank you, Dana. Thank you you for helping make it possible. (laughs) And with that, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back after this commercial to hear more from Speaking Broadly and our extraordinary next guest, Deb Dugan, who is the CEO of RED. Hey, it's Kathy Irway, the host of Eat Your Words. Today I'm here with Camilla Salisbury, author of Bob's Red Mill Everyday Gluten-Free Cookbook, 281 Delicious Whole Grain Recipes. We're going to get to the bottom of this gluten-free craze. So why aren't people eating gluten and what does gluten-free really mean? Well, there are two main reasons why um, people are deciding to go gluten-free these days. And the first one is really serious. It's for people who have celiac disease, and it's a pretty serious um, condition. But then there is also a growing number of people with gluten intolerance or gluten sensitivity, and they're trying out um, gluten-free diets um, because they find that eating foods without gluten just makes them feel better. Okay, got it. But what actually makes something gluten-free? Well, what makes something gluten-free is essentially that it doesn't have any um, of the protein gluten in it. And a lot of people are surprised to learn that uh, many grains do not contain gluten, when in fact just a very small number of grains do. Does anyone offer truly gluten-free options? Um, Well, Bob's Red Mill really understands gluten-free options, um, and that means... They separate their grains um, during the manufacturing process, and so they're testing each batch at every step of the way for purity to ensure that it's gluten-free. So when it says on the package that it's gluten-free, you can be assured that it is gluten-free. All right, so gluten-free listeners out there craving some steel-cut oats can pick up a pack of Bob's Red Mill and rest assured you're getting the real deal. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and all the gluten-free products that they offer at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and I am thrilled to have Deb Dugan in the studio with me here in Bushwick. Deb is the CEO of RED. I'm sure all of you know RED as the charity that's about heat, urgency, those brackets. They're, they want to eradicate AIDS by 2020. It was a charity that was founded in 2006 by Bono and Bobby Shriver. And to date, they have raised $465 million, with 100% of that money going to AIDS programs that have helped impact 60 
million lives. I really, the numbers, like if you just did AIDS by the numbers and the impact that red has, your mind will be blown. So stay with me as I talk to Deb Dugan, who joined red in 2011. So Deb, welcome to Speaking Broadly. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I would just love to have you give us an update on the HIV and AIDS crisis in the world right now. Where, where do we stand? Well, as you said it, Dana, the numbers are staggering. Uh, you've had 35 million die from this disease. and for I those- think there's an interesting statistic to give people a sense. 35 million is the number of people in Canada? Was there something? Yeah, it's a bit close to the population of Canada. So just think of Canada <laughs> Gone. being empty. Yes. Yeah, that's how many have died in a disease that's you know roughly common in our lifetime um, uh, 35 years ago. And, you know, when people think, oh, is it over, there's 36 million people that we'd like you to meet that still have the virus. And so it takes a community. It's not just Red. Uh, it's, it's the Global Fund and many people at work. But now there's 18 million people that are on life-saving medication that if they didn't get the medication, which costs 30 cents a day, they would be dead. So there's 18 million. So we've made great, great strides. But Every two minutes, a teenager is infected with HIV, and more girls die of AIDS now than in car accidents. And in 2017, that just shouldn't be for a treatable, preventable disease. Where is the um, epicenter of the AIDS epidemic? Yeah, the the money for red goes for where it's worse on the planet, which is sub-Sahara Africa. Um, And we concentrate there because if you could eliminate mother-child transmission of HIV, as we've done in the United States and Europe uh, in very effective ways in sub-Sahara Africa, you could have a tipping point for an infectious disease that makes it so that you could actually see the end of AIDS. That is a beautiful thing to envision. I think we should all help make that vision come true. When I think about RED, one of the things that stands out to me is that it was conceived of as a brand, and the way that you reach people and engage them is as if you were Apple. So could you talk about the way in which perceiving yourself as a brand helps move this fight forward? Yeah, it's interesting. If you think of how a business is run and they think of their competitors, uh, in the not-for-profit world, you don't want to feel like you're competing with breast cancer with (laughs) any of these things because they're all so great and we all try to help each other. But we started with the sensibility that we wanted marketing plans as big as Nike, as big as uh, some of the the biggest uh, campaigns in the world in order to break through the clutter and get people's attention um, on this worldwide health crisis. So we are 20 people in Chelsea, New York. We try to look for uh, big moments uh, to break through and have multiple touch points to reach people where their passions are. And so that's a different model, I think, for philanthropy. But it's so far working for us. I want to hear about how you come up with the fantastic ideas. Last night, you launched your very first food and film festival in Bryant Park. It was hosted by Mari Batali. I came, I got a picnic. I had Angie Mars um, chicken liver mousse, which was phenomenal. And Ina Garten had a dish. I mean, that's the closest I've gotten to, you know, Ina in a long time. She's 
awesome and almost a recluse. Like the idea that we got to have her food uh, was so exciting. It was innovative. It was a beautiful night. You showed Sleepless in Seattle. So how do you come up with these one-of-a-kind ideas that engage people and help them learn about AIDS at the same time? Well, we always say that we're, we're only as good as our next big idea, and so we follow trends. Uh, I would say about five years ago, uh, we had a, a, a trend specialist from Paris come in and start talking about there's something with this generation and food that's different than ever before, whether it's how they break bread at the table, how they meet in an obscure place and they don't know each other but through an app have a meal together, um, how they cook more at home and how they're organic and what they're looking for. The relationship with food is is so different. And then at the same time, you had these young chefs all of a sudden on the cover of Vogue and these movements, uh, you know, in, in Brooklyn and Red Hook and uh, outside of Paris of, of fooding. And so he sort of laid out a, a vision for us to say, is there something you can do to capture people? people's passions around food. And that started a campaign called Eat Red, Save Lives uh, that we've been doing each June. And every year it gets bigger and bigger. I got to participate in um, a small PSA that I thought was brilliant because for the price of the medication, which is 30 cents, you had chefs say what that could buy you, you know, whether it was a piece of bread or, a, you know, a half a link of sausage. And when you think how far it could go in saving lives is a, a great um, analogy, I think. Well, you might not remember, but way back when, when we started with this idea, we did talk to you and you came up with the term, how about a red supper? And so we've been having red suppers. It could be backstage at Bonnaroo, at different places. They just pop up and we feel like it's a total win if we can get awareness out there and people understand something more about the fight against AIDS and have a wonderful experience that makes them smile. Well, you've layered some incredible experiences. What are some of the your fantastic experiences that you offer on Omaze once a year? Yeah, we tend to uh, look for uh, sort of, you know, not typical um, experiences with celebrities and influencers. Uh, we do it in Omaze because it's a sweepstakes. It's not an auction. So everybody for $10 has a chance at winning. They they run the gamut between um, going on with Snoop Dogg on a wellness visit in Colorado to having Mario give you a salami master class, George Clooney looking in your eyes and telling you how great you are. Um, I think I would buy like a hundred million dollars worth of you know that potential experience. That would be very special. Yeah, but the good news is that we actually don't do it as an auction so that the richest person wins. We do it as a sweepstake so that for ten dollars you have a shot. Um, at having this crazy experience. So how did you come to Red? Like, what was your life's journey that led you to the place that you are today? Oh, wow. That's, that's a big question, because for everybody, you should pause every now and then and think, where do your values come from? Was it your grandmother? Was it a school teacher? You know, what, what event might have had an effect on you growing up? You know, for me, it was live AIDS, uh, dating myself, but it, you know, it was John Lennon in Bangladesh. You know, and for my kids, I worry so much. They were in New York for 9-11. They were in Boston uh, for, for the bombings of the Boston Marathon. And I think what's going to shape them and inspire them. So for everybody, it's different. 
different. My dad uh, started the Peace Corps with Sergeant Shriver uh, in the uh, I early. I just astonishing. Oh, well. I mean, talk know, about a big idea. Right, right. And I do, you know, have pictures of him. Uh, you know, doing jumping jacks in Turkey as they were, uh, you know, trying to figure out what is this model and what could it be during the Kennedy administration. Uh, he died suddenly at the age of 38 when I was six years old. Mm-hmm. And my mom uh, had never worked. She was from the Mad Men generation. And uh, although she went to college and was very educated, uh, <laughs> but she hadn't had that life experience. And she found herself with three children and no money. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we struggled. And I, I do think that at that time, I looked outside my family for bigger than life role models of Martin Luther King, that each life has equal value, um, you know, the Shrivers and what they do with Special Olympics and many things. And and that took me on a path. Um, I, you know, paid for my own undergraduate. I paid for my own law school, um, you know, but each step of the way, uh, and you go through phases in life. Sometimes you need to make money to just, you know, put food on the table. And sometimes you have uh, an extra opportunity to help your community arts center. You know, it's, it's all of a piece of composing your life. But my path was a, a little different in that I, um, you know, did law uh, for many years to pay back my student loans. I was uh, often waitressing on weekends uh, because those were a lot of loans I had. Uh, <laughs> but but then I ended up going, um, you know, learning deal making as, as a lawyer. Then I was at EMI Records because I love music. Um, and I dealt with artists and marketing there for eight years. And then at Disney, learning all about brands so that when I sat before Bono of U2 uh, and Bobby Shriver, who are the founders of Red, I had a wealth of experience to bring to philanthropy to get to think of new models and, and to think about it a different way. Um, and uh, then after I was interviewed with Bobby Shriver at the end of the interview, when he said, I think you'd be great for Red. I told him that uh, his family had had an effect on this just one small family uh, in Long Island, New York, uh, and I thanked him for that. So something felt of a piece in my life that um, you you do the best you can at each stage to compose and think, am I living my best life? And you don't know where that game of chess is exactly going to land. But if you go with your gut and keep your values with you and don't leave them at the door, no matter what you're doing, my guess is you'll end in a good place. Well, you've, you've certainly arrived at an extraordinary place. I'm wondering, what were the, were there singular marketing lessons at EMI or singular brand lessons at Disney that influence what you're doing today that everyone would need to know just living in this world? Yeah, I think it's um, finding the commonality, finding the, the heart of humanity that, that moves you to, to break through the clutter. So when we started out this conversation saying, you know, 35 million have died, that just like rolls off your shoulder. But if you hear one story of, of Connie Munetto, who is in Zambia, and she's had three children die of HIV, because if you don't get the medication before your second birthday, um, you're, you're likely to pass away. And she didn't understand why her children were dying. 
and then finally she got educated uh, enough to go get tested. And when she was tested, she found out that she was HIV positive. She got on life-saving medication, became an activist, uh, and has been working in Zambian prisons to help people w- overcome the stigma and learn about this disease. And then, oh my God, three years ago, she has a baby, Labona, that she did not pass uh, HIV on to. And so I, I hear those stories, and I think other people need to know those stories because then the nickel drops and it all becomes quite real. I thought you... you told me an extraordinary story about um, the stigma attached and how important it is to eliminate the stigma. And so could you talk about um, Rwanda and the the challenges that people face who, who are living every day with AIDS? Yeah, it's really sad when, uh, you know, again, if it costs 30 cents a day to keep yourself alive, the medication... And you're trying to decide between food for your kid, uh, rent, you know, and or having a, a roof over their heads or life-saving medications. These are decisions that you shouldn't have to make in 2017. Where you live shouldn't, de- where you're born shouldn't determine whether or not you live. It's really not about charity. At some point, it just becomes about justice. And so I've seen, you know, women who work in the fields, uh, this one woman in particular, you know, explained to me that if, if there was, you know, a drought or bad conditions and she couldn't work in the field, therefore she couldn't make any money, um, she would take her children to the, you know, inner uh, town scale. And if they had lost a, a certain percentage of body weight, they would be given a meal so that they wouldn't die. And um, and yet here she she's trying to get her medications, uh, you know, at the same time. And you realize oh my gosh, you know, um, and and we think that we've overcome the stigma. Uh, Javier Munez, who is the um, lead in Hamilton now, uh, you know, who's HIV positive, will, you know, say that even in the United States, we haven't overcome the stigma. So you can imagine a place like Rwanda, where they're, you know, they could be kicked out of their home, they could be isolated uh, from their community. So we make sure when they're getting life-saving medication, when they leave the clinic, that that box looks the same as everybody else leaving the clinics with just plain vitamins, Um, uh, so that they're not ostracized in any way. Um, and so we, we do a lot on, on education, on prevention, and on treatment. We're making big, big swings, but there's, there's really so much more to do. So, and you're doing with extraordinary partners. I was on your site looking at, you have 200 products. So, I, I love how democratic your approach is, right? You can buy a Swell bottle. You can buy an Apple Watch. Um, you have a, a recent promotion with HelloFresh. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, so on the Eat Red, we really like the idea of when you're dining at home, when you go out to a restaurant, when you hit a food truck, when you go to a high-end restaurant, you know, you might be encounter some surprising moment with red, and we've been so lucky because you're right. We have the new iPhone that just dropped, the red iPhone. Um, you know, which some people said, "Oh, are there any new qualities to this?" You know, red iPhone. 
And I'm like, yeah, this one saves lives. How about making, <laughs> how about making that choice? Yeah. They cost the same. Right. Just choose the red one and you're saving a life. Like, I don't know. It seems like a no brainer for this generation to make that choice. But we have great partnership with Apple. Um, and we do, we look for courageous CEOs that keep their values with them. So, you know, Tim Cook is one of those people. I think Mark Benioff at Salesforce, which is a red partner, is the same. I would say the same about Brian Moynihan. Uh, Bank of America has given $20 million in the fight against AIDS. These are these are huge swings in a country, you know, like Ghana. I'm curious, when, when you talk about courageous leaders, and, I, and I've heard you say that you look for a, a value system in your uh, the partners. Why do you think you need to be courageous to join Hands with Red? Because it's not easy. I think on the things that keep you up late at night now, AIDS is probably number 39, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not... It, there's so much... Um, uh, that that goes to the top of social media, of internet, that's sensational, that's everyday, distracting and almost disorienting. Mm-hmm. And so how do you calmly get back to your values of equality, that, that each life has equal value, that, you know, certain things are not about charity, not about justice, not left, not right. There are some basic things of humanity that we can all agree on. And oddly... As people are fighting for things and lobbying for things that might not be good, you have to lobby for those good things just as strong. Otherwise, they fall off the agenda. So we feel that if we can galvanize youth to give a damn, companies will give a damn. And when youth and companies give a damn, it affects policy. And that's why you stay focused on the trends. Because if you don't stay focused on the trends and you don't constantly innovate, you lose the relevance that you feel the the struggle itself doesn't necessarily have would that be yeah we can't be boring if we're, if we're <laughs> boring and I'll, I'll just you know say something quite crass and show babies with flies on their faces and say whoa it's me that is not going to cut through the clutter right now we're about optimism uh, about being provocative in your face Let's do something good. And yeah, you know what? We're going to go where your passions are. We're going to fish where the fish are. And and we're going to catch you who is sitting home in your basement playing video games. And all of a sudden, you're going to see a funny lifeguard in Despicable Me jumping in, saving somebody. And when he hits the water, boom, money goes to the Global Fund and saves lives. I think that it, I'm not sure what it says about our society right now that a picture of a baby with their face covered with the flies doesn't cut through the cutter and I agree with you why is that well I think that it's it's there and it's um real and so I don't mean to you know demean uh any not-for-profit that does show that because you're right you don't want to of, co- of course, forget that. And of course, if you go to our website, you will hear story after story that's, that's, that's heart-wrenching. So, so there's a place for that, of course, but it is harder and harder to get people's attention. So Red goes where you are in your daily life. You want to have a picnic in the park with like great food and uh, watch Sleepless in Seattle and remember something about connections and romance and you want to see the best in design and experience beautiful art and have great music 
It and, tends and those, to be where we play at Red. Right. So, yes, you've intersected uh, in the world of people's passions. I'm curious about you as a leader because you've studied leadership. You've studied marketing. What type of leader are you? How do you inspire those 20 people who do Herculean work? Oh, no, the red team is crazy. I mean, if you think about it, they're all top of their game in what they're doing. Um, you know, so when we say, oh, come to Red uh, and, and contact our social media person, there is one person doing social media <laughs> and we have six million that follow us. So, it, it, so, so everybody's top at their game. They actually care. So that makes them you? give. Well, I, you know, I care also. <laughs> and then we care about each other and have each other's back. So it's, it's, it's an intense experience. Um, but what I try to do is have everybody feel a great degree of autonomy to be able to take some risks, to act really fast. I love not having a bureaucracy. We can make decisions in a flash. Um, I love the fact that we are 10 years old and we operate like a startup, uh, and, and that is by design. So every three weeks, not three weeks, but I would say every three months or so, we shake it up. We do ideation. We think about driverless cars, um, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, virtual reality. How do those things affect philanthropy? And how do they affect getting people to give a shit and do the right thing in the world. Did you come to any conclusions about that? Because I think those are the topics on people's minds. Like, how would you... The the answer is yes, of course. Of course, just like anything else. If artificial intelligence can predict behavior to say, you are going to buy this car, and there's a way to watch your data on the choices you make on Amazon, what you like on Facebook, to determine that... I believe that we could chart the path of somebody who cares. What What is it that gets their attention in the first place? What is it that takes them to make a choice like red? What is it to get them to sign a petition or take to the streets? I think that path can be shown by artificial intelligence, and that's the better use of it. <laughs> and truly a game changer when applied to a not-for-profit, which is the first time I've heard anyone uh, put AI and doing good in the same sort of six words. <laughs> Very true. So all that ide- ideating um, has brought a lot of original thinking and and passion for the future. On speaking broadly, I, I love to hear from my guests, someone who they would suggest for the Hall of Dames. We have a food hall of dames here where you pay it forward. Pick someone who's inspired you and whose way of being in this world you believe is a model not only for yourself but for others. Does uh, someone come to mind? Melinda Gates. I have to say, Melinda Gates, like crazy smart, top executive. Using that um, in such a broad way I, I think people won't know until generations from now the effect she has had on women worldwide. Um, just, it's staggering. Um, and of course she does it with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, but I think Bill would be the first to say that she was the one that got him into it. And what are some of the things that, that she's done that you think, you know, a decade from now will look back and say, 
wow, Melinda Gates started this. You know, she takes risks and takes on very, very hard issues. You know, family planning is is one. It's it's a a difficult nut to crack when you go country by country and there's tribes and there's, uh, you know, amazing uh, traditions and how how do you educate in a sensitive way uh, given people's religions and given people's backgrounds and everything and she attacks it like a ball of yarn thread by thread which with such consideration uh, good thinking and compassion uh, and then creativity on the solutions. So I guess I'm lucky in that I get to see her on the ground and I get to see um, the effects that she has and the real impact. But I find it beautiful and staggering. So she's my vote. Thank you so much. And thank you, Deb, for joining us on Speaking Broadly today and sharing not only the vision for RED, but um, how you got there and giving people new ideas about how they can interact with powerful charities and be a force for good themselves, staying true to their own values and taking their values with them wherever they go in this world. So that is today's show. Thank you very much for listening to Speaking Broadly. Thank you to David Tatashore, my amazing engineer. I've had two window guests, Sylvie Palmer and Hugh Davies. Thank you so much for joining us on the Gray Chairs. And we'll be back next week. As always, love to hear from you. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at FWScout or at Speaking Broadly. And um, Deb, for people who want to uh, find Red, for people who want to find Red, where should they uh, where should they find you on Instagram or yeah, follow us Facebook? on Red.org. Uh, you know, it, it shows uh, all of our social media. Um, you know, we're always trying to uh, be the first in tech to do something clever on Snapchat, on Instagram. Oh, my God, the food right now. There's uh, amazing, amazing pictures of, of Eat Red and everything that we're doing city by city. So uh, please go to red.org and join us. That's great. Till next week, signing off. It's Dana Cowan. for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.